from MIT. This is the Energy Initiative, and I'm Francis O'Sullivan. Welcome to today's podcast, one of a series we're carrying out focusing on game-changing energy technologies. We're talking with colleagues from across MIT on the work they're doing looking at defining the future of energy. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Vladimir Bulovich, the director of MIT Nano and co-director of the mighty Solar Low Carbon Energy Center. Uh, Vladimir, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Frank. Vladimir, we hear a lot about solar energy today. It has obviously come to prominence in the past five years, maybe over the past decade. We've seen dramatic uh, reductions in the cost of panels, and we're seeing real deployment today. And there's a tremendous amount of excitement about solar energy really offering a pathway to um, very significant decarbonization of the electricity system and so on. With that said, uh, some, including yourself, have begun to reflect on some of the inherent limitations that today's crystalline silicon technologies have as we move from their kind of current competitive envelope into the future. And we look at a broader electrification uh, of the economy. I'd love to hear your reflections on, on that, on the journey that solar has made over the past 10, 20, 30 years indeed, where we are today, and where we're going to go from here as we look to kind of really build on the momentum that the low carbon energy transition has. So Frank, I think it's really important to start by emphasizing that solar technology of yesterday is nothing like solar technology of today. Today, it's much dramatically improved, both in lifetime and efficiency, in the way that the modules are being able to more economically be made. The next version of it really is driven by asking what part of the solar cell is useful. Most of the solar cell materials are actually not functional besides providing mechanical stability to the functional parts. That's to say you only need a few dozen microns of silicon and that is the part that will absorb all the light you need to generate electricity. If you then go ahead and say well can I go ahead and use other materials beyond silicon and could I uh, make an even thinner version of the cell and the answer is absolutely yes. Silicon is not optimized for absorbing light. It's an indirect band gap semiconductor you can do a lot better by direct band gap semiconductors and many, many, many of the nanostructured solids in the forms of molecules or quantum dots or more directly, lately, so-called perovskite crystals. These are the material sets that have a direct band gap, absorb light really, really strongly, and hence can get away with being extremely thin. Now, why does that matter? Well, silicon needs to be supported by a thick piece of glass because if it's not, the silicon wafer will crack. And the moment it cracks, it oxidizes and stops operating right. efficiently or at all. The nanostructured solids are thin enough that even if you bend them, they do not crack. As a matter of fact, uh, you can make them on top of flexible, lightweight, paper-like substrates, uh, our latest demonstration showed. Well, what does that open up? Well, today, two-thirds of the cost of an installation of a silicon module is going to be spent um, on the installation itself. And uh, one third will be on a module itself. Which simply means if I can make my installation simpler, I can reduce the cost of solar technology by a factor of upwards of three. Now, solar today uh, can be bought at five cents a kilowatt hour. Reduce that by a factor of three and you're less than two cents a kilowatt hour. That's remarkable. No other technology can 
in a short run imagine doing that. Solar can, but it requires a redefinition of what the solar cell is. So, I mean, I've reflected on this a little bit, Vladimir, over the years, you know, the kind of the trajectory that solar has had. And if we look at crystalline silicon as the kind of ubiquitous, you know, silicon paradigm today, as you mentioned, we've seen very, very significant gains in the efficiency. You've seen tremendous and perhaps the most profound gains with respect to the cost of manufacturing. So wafers have gotten thinner, plants manufacturing them have gotten much larger, etc., etc. Um, but something that strikes me is that if you step back and you actually look at where record efficiency was achieved, or when record efficiency was last achieved for a silicon, crystalline silicon cell, it was certainly maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer. It really feels to me that you know a lot of the progress that we've seen today has been in the transition from the lab into the market, into the scaling, and then ultimately into the deployment. What you and your team and many of our colleagues here at MIT and of course uh, in other institutions are working on today feels to me that it's kind of back in that lab, right? You're envisaging, uh, you know, concocting that kind of new formula that is going to allow us to kind of utterly turn things around, utterly reimagine the deployment paradigm, open up a whole host of additional markets and opportunities. And that's exciting, but of course, we're going to have to bridge from the lab to that market. We're going to have to think about scaling. We're going to have to think about how we actually um, make this compelling relative to the alternative. So I'd kind of like your thoughts on where we are today in terms of the perhaps like the academic or the science, but also where we are today then in terms of how we take that progress and you kind of really get it deployed. So I'm expecting that as the cost of the solars comes down, as we make them thinner, installation simpler, um, it will start being obvious that what we should really do is not necessarily focus on the 30-year lifetime. 10-year lifetime will be enough. Cost will be low. Installation will be as simple as stapling things to the roof because with the lightweight cells, you would not need to reinforce your roof. And indeed, delivery of such cells to remote parts of the world that are longing for electrical power will be much easier to do than with the present silicon. The developing world market uh, might be the perfect stepping stone to the broader introduction of solar in developed worlds, this new type of solar. Right. And the metric of weight, again, becomes a very significant metric for deployment of such technology. I would also say that you know there are novel modalities that will start coming through in the use of solar. I mean, the, the solar as a, as a power source is brilliant in that it harvests the sunlight. Sunlight gives us 10,000 times more energy uh, than we consume in a matter of a year. Yep. But the challenge is collecting it all, right? I mean, if we can collect all the sunlight for one hour, we can power the planet for one year. The catch is that for that one hour, the entire planet Earth needs to be covered with solar cells, sure. uh, right? Which is, or at least half of it facing the sun. <laughs> um, still, the challenge of such large area deployment is quite significant. And so active surfaces of the present objects we build now, meaning activate uh, solar activity on any surface you touch, well, that might be another way of deploying solar energy, except since by design, solar is meant to absorb all the light. Typical solar cell is very dark looking right. or maybe reflecting blue due to the AR coating that's up on the top. So 
aesthetics of solar becomes an issue if you actually want to deploy it in the built environment. And it's silly to consider aesthetics except for the fact that built environment we already do spend effort and energy building. So if we can come up with an inadvertently introduced solar gathering device within that environment, that would be a very powerful method for covering large areas of right. the present world with solar cells. So for that purpose, uh, another technology that you can consider with solar is to make so-called invisible solar cells. Solar cells that do not absorb any visible light, but do absorb infrared and ultraviolet light. And in such a way, uh, these solar cells are never going to work as well as silicon or some of these dark looking cells because we're purposely throwing out a third of the available spectrum. Yes. Uh, nevertheless, the Shockley quasar limit on these cells uh, is on the order of 21% for a single junction versus 31% for silicon. Yet, when you make them, they look like absolutely nothing. Uh, they look like a piece of glass, you can think of it that way. Uh, they are transparent to our visible uh, radiation and consequently to what our eye catches. Mm -hmm. Any surface now can become solar active, providing you power in a format that is unobservable. And hence, incidental collection of power by your solar windows or even your glasses. Right. Uh, right. If you put a micron thick coating on your glasses, you can today generate 5 to 10 milliwatts of power, place that power to your ear and run your hearing aids. So you'll never have to replace the batteries of those hearing aids. Or indeed, if uh, you have a Bluetooth radio, uh, that's another thing you might want to power in your ear. If you put it on top of your Kindle, such a transparent cell, you would never need to charge your Kindle again because even with 1% efficient version of such a cell, you'll collect enough power in the course of a day to recharge, well, in the course of a few days, to fully recharge the Kindle battery that lasts a couple of weeks. So the point being that I think we can redefine the built environment by introduction of yet another version of these nanostructured solar technologies that are just coming around the corner. And although they might not be the most efficient things around, they might be even more easily deployable because they'll be just value-added yes. thin film coating to an existing surfaces that we already built. Well, I think this is such a compelling and exciting kind of aspect of the work you are doing. So it's really an expansion, as you said, of, of solar from a standalone, this is what a solar farm looks like, to a circumstance where it's more deployable with flexible formats and so on. So it's easier, requires less proprietary work, it's more flexible from a transportation point of view, etc., right the way through to something that is inherently integrated into the world around us. And each step is making it more accessible, more flexible as a kind of method for powering the economy, uh, opening up more opportunities for value-add and so on. You, with your work here at the MIT Nano Center, are kind of putting together a center and you know an element for the institute that feels to me has many strong parallels to that particular story because it's about helping broadly expand and enable the deployment of these new technologies across this kind of wide spectrum of opportunities and helping the innovators to access the technologies and so on that they need to kind of move 
through the development process in a way that hasn't been available to date. Tell me a little bit about how, you know, in your own mind from the solar side, and indeed perhaps from a kind of more broader or general sense, how this effort here at the Institute today with MIT Nano is becoming more and more relevant, more and more important as we kind of face into these big, big challenges for technology development. No, I would love to, because um, it turns out that MIT Nano has been in the making for over a couple of decades. <laughs> it has been in the forefront of our mind recognizing that we are short on laboratory space given the desires for us as a community to invent the next and the next ideas. Uh, so we built right in the middle of our campus, right next to the MIT Dome, footsteps away from everyone, a central facility. It's uh, 100,000 square feet of shared laboratory space in a 200,000 square foot building uh, that is shared between every single department of MIT. It doesn't belong to a single school. It doesn't belong to a single department. It indeed unifies uh, on the order of 2,000 researchers per year will utilize it. And as time goes on, it will likely grow to uh, three to 4,000, meaning roughly half of MIT at some point will be stepping into MIT Nano. Right now, it's about a quarter of MIT researchers will step into MIT Nano to get their work done. Now, what's inside? Well, right now, a whole bunch of spaces awaiting installation of new equipment and installations of new ideas that faculty have. Uh, I like end, that, Vladimir, the installation <laughs> of new ideas. That's, if we, that's excellent. So we started construction and design of MIT Nano six, seven years ago. And if then we had everything figured out, the building would be old right now as we're opening it. Uh, indeed, the flexibility and the growth, continuous evergreen nature of the space is really important and is built into the operation of MIT Nano. Inside it, uh, right now, one of the first tools we're going to be installing are sheet coating uh, tool sets for sheet coating of thin nanostructured films for the sake of developing either organic, polymeric, molecular, quantum dot, or perovskite thin films so they can be utilized as solar active media. Right. Uh, we have, over the summer, visited other facilities to understand the opportunity for roll-to-roll -roll coating, ability to do large area development of such ideas. All that is doable. Uh, it's really just a question of finding the right kind of tools or building new tools from scratch, as many of these technologies indeed are at such nascency uh, because they have been recently developed. They are performing amazingly well. Uh, over 20% perovskite cells are now available in laboratory through spin coating, not through doctor blading mm -hmm. or large area gravure coating or such. Now, what simply that means is that Today's technology is extremely promising, but we haven't yet shown the proper scalability of it, except in very rare instances, but not as efficiently as what we are able to do in the best of the best results that are just one-offs. So the opportunity within MIT Nano is to ask you, if you have a fantastic idea, go ahead and you know develop it in your private lab here somewhere at MIT, and then you want to figure out how to scale it, you can try building inside your lab uh, you know, a new system to do it, Typically, there's no space for something like that. Uh, MIT Nano, though, does have space. And as long as you're willing to engage others, generate a community of people around you, you'll be able to locate the tool sets in MIT Nano to allow you, hence, to build a grand idea together. And then there are startups that provide quite a unique set of ideas, or call it take the quite a unique set of ideas from universities and try to scale them up. The big challenge with startups is that um, I was recently told that back 
10 years ago, 30% of the venture capital went into hardware developments, like would be needed for solar development. Today, it's less than 5% of the venture capital is invested in development of hardware ideas, where 95 is invested in digital ideas. So money is sparse. And indeed, if you actually want to launch a new technology from scratch using new materials and processes that have never been scaled before, a typical number when it comes to how much money you will need uh, is about 50 to $100 million over the course of 5 to 10 years of scaling up the idea. Hmm. Well, that's a lot of money and it's non-existent. So you can ask in the beginning of that journey of starting a new idea, how will you validate that you indeed have a great idea in your hands? Well, raise round A and round A is typically 10 million and then you can go ahead and reduce the practice and consequently you'll attract new capital. You'll never raise round A right. given the present situation. Sure. So the question in my mind was, is there a way to utilize facilities like MIT Nano to dramatically reduce the amount of money you'll need to generate the next set of ideas or at least validate them beyond just the initial stages that universities typically work at? And uh, I believe the answer is yes. Looking at startups I had the privilege of being a part of, uh, we would generate a great new idea at the university. And next thing we would do is step out to university because universities are not for profit. And if you're going to start a for-profit entity, you need to do it off the campus. If that's the case, uh, very first thing we need to do is reproduce the labs we just left, refill them with equipment, figure out how to deliver liquid nitrogen, or figure out how to set up glove boxes. Huge amount of expense. Mm -hmm. And I say a few million dollars in a year and a half just to get you to the place where you were when you left MIT. Why, why not shorten the journey and make it less expensive by simply saying the day after you graduate, come back to MIT Nano as a visiting researcher or a research scientist from outside. We have those. We have startups using MIT Nano and other facilities on campus as external users to maximize utility of our tool sets. You do as well. And for a fraction of the cost, and the day after you graduate, you can start the journey of validating that idea. So when you actually stand in front of venture capitalists, you have a much more baked idea in your hand, a couple of years after you graduated, let's say. And that also means that the journey from that moment to actual deployment of your technology to million hands is also not going to take five to 10 years. Now it should take three to eight. <laughs> let's call it five, right. to make things simpler, making it much more amenable to being funded. So I think MIT Nano can help us accelerate hardware technology development in ways that we could not have done before on this campus without the central facility that now we are opening up. It's such a compelling idea, and I think it really resonates with with respect to the energy challenge, the fact that we need systems of solutions, we need communities of folks coming together and working together to kind of deliver the innovation. And so, uh, you know, I think it's a very exciting, uh, a very exciting new component for, for the MIT community. For the broader world, though, for the broader energy community, it also feels to me like this approach that you are pioneering really has a tremendous amount of uh, value and utility. And that kind of leads me to this issue of the game changers concept in energy. You recently 
uh, participated in an event in Washington, D.C., reflecting on some potential game-changing technologies in the energy space, uh, along with some of our colleagues from, from Stanford. And at that event, a lot of really fantastic narratives about the potential out there were delivered. And the point was that we wanted to kind of bring those stories to DC and kind of have policymakers and so on understand this so that they can kind of appreciate the need to support this work. Because of your prominence in this space, Vladimir, and because of kind of the thoughtfulness that you brought to, to solar, but also more broadly to innovation, I'm curious, you know, on your reflections about where we are today nationally, internationally, potentially, in this kind of arc of innovation and in kind of seizing the opportunities that we see from the work in the lab, at least. Uh, where are we and what do we need to do more broadly from a policy-making point of view, maybe even from a societal point of view, in terms of giving us the opportunity to kind of move those ideas forward? Frank, it's a very deep question you're asking, and I guess I would try to simplify it in ways that allow us a way to kind of take a concrete action forward which is the new type of solar is coming. And if it's not going to be United States that will lead the way of developing two cents a kilowatt hour or one cent a kilowatt hour solar technology, someone else will. There is no question in my mind that there is a next generation of solar just around the corner, meaning in the next five years, we'll have more readily deployable, lighter, very inexpensive solar energy. That being said, if we are not the ones as United States to lead that Ray and some of our economic competitors might be, we will be in a dramatically reduced position where the big challenge we'll have is that all our energy will be way more expensive than the energy utilized elsewhere to produce anything from food to everyday existence. <laughs> as a result, we will be disadvantaged just because we haven't yet opened our eyes to the opportunity today that we should indeed seize the moment and be the lead as we are presently yeah. in developing the next and the next set of ideas to give us this very, very inexpensive electricity. Vladimir, we have uh, come to the end of our time and that's always bad from my point of view because speaking to you is such a pleasure, such an inspiration really, both in terms of kind of your vision and the work that you're doing on the solar front and the groundbreaking uh, and game-changing potential there, but perhaps even more importantly, the work that you're doing in trying to bridge the gap from the lab to deployment and understanding the real system opportunities and challenges and what it would really take to be game-changing for energy. So uh, let me thank you so very much for your time. And so, uh, go ahead. So, so Frank, I, I have to just reciprocate in, <laughs> in a following way, if I may. Thank you very, very much for engaging me in this journey. I cannot be thankful enough to MIT Energy Initiative for having the vision to recognize that beyond our technical outputs, um, uh, what is dominantly important is our perspective on where the future is heading and our appreciation of how to blend that perspective with the policies that are needed to translate those visions into actionable items that the world can benefit from. I, command, I just commend you on your ability to indeed comprehend a very complex systems, not just of technology. In some ways, technology is the simplest. 
what is really important is asking those next steps. Now that we have it in our hand, how do we give it to the world? And the work you're doing and through this podcast advocating are the keys to our future success and indeed benefit to the planet. Well, Vladimir, thank you for the kind words. I think, uh, I think it's reasonable for us both to say it's a team effort and we're all, we're all trying to make, uh, make a little bit of difference. Agreed. So listen, thank you so much. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback on this podcast, please tweet us at MIT Energy. And of course, feel free to subscribe and review us where you get your podcasts. From MIT, I'm Francis O'Sullivan, and thank you for listening.